Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Hey Jundo, how are you today? I'm all right, man. Something crossed my mind, and when people don't know anything about Zen, they may think that it's very difficult, very hard. But when people do know things about Zen, they may think it's easy. What's the deal with that? You know, there are some things that uh, are not a matter of hard or easy. And uh, there's hard practice, there's easy practice. But neither of those changes what we are all along. And to find out what we are and always have been all along, you can practice hard or you can practice easy. But in either case, you got to practice smart. Ooh, practice smart. That's a good, mm-hmm. that, that, you should trademark that. That would be a good slogan. Um, tree leaf, tree leaf zen, practice smart. Consider it copyrighted. Okay. So you have a little quip about how to find New York. Yeah. See, if you're standing in Times Square and you're trying to find New York, there are two ways. One is the hard way. One is that you can start uh, getting on trains and buses and looking all over. Where's New York? Where's New York? And the other way is just to rest, open your eyes, and realize where you have been all along. Well, Zen is just about realizing what we have been all along. We are New York. And uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, looking hard for it, getting on the train, going up to the Bronx, over to Brooklyn, down, you know, to the the Bowery. Nothing wrong with it. It's all New York. And you're going to discover a lot. But also just opening your eyes and resting. It's all New York, and you've been there. You are that all along. So hard practice, searching, good. Resting, opening your eyes, just being, good. All New York. I bet you're going to say something like there's a middle way between the two of those. Well, yeah, kind of, because either extreme can be bad. This is my point. Throughout the history of Buddhism, you have people who have practiced very intensely, unimaginably intensely, to find their true nature, to find their New Yorkness. They uh, might uh, lock themselves in a cave. They might engage in incredibly concentrated forms of meditation. They may do all kinds of breathing practices. There are Tendai monks who run for hundreds of miles each day in order to test the body to find this truth. And you know what? They all find it. They all make wonderful discoveries. But the other way that's bad is if you become obsessed with that. You're just trying to attain, to get. You're always looking for New York. It's always somewhere over the most distant hill. 
You're going to get there. You're going to push yourself. You're going to find it. And you don't realize it's been here all along. So that's the bad way to go about it. On the other extreme, there's a difference between resting, opening your eyes, realizing what has been all along by letting go of the search. There's a difference between that and just being complacent, you know, wallowing in our own ignorance, you know, just giving up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about truly resting, allowing, letting be, opening our eyes and realizing that, well, the Big Apple has been here all along. There's an interesting dichotomy to what you're describing, because in the latter action, you're allowing something to happen and you're understanding that when it happens, it has been that way all along. But in the former, you're talking about actively seeking out something. And what happens to the person who does that when they find what they're looking for? They get to a point where they, they've been seeking so hard and for so long. How do they stop? Well, some people really need that because they're so wrapped up in their ignorance and their thoughts that they really must push themselves intensely until there's a break and they let go. And I think that's fine. If some people really need that, you know, you have to, you know, it's like climbing a mountain. you got to climb and climb and climb. Where's the mountain? And you realize you've been climbing the mountain from the top of the mountain, the bottom of the mountain, the middle of the mountain is all the mountain, right? But some people need to do the climbing, climbing, climbing to really find the mountain. Other folks might just realize that the bottom of the mountain, every step on the mountain, the top of the mountain, is all the mountain. But in either case, if you're a kind of person who's on the mountain or in New York and can't realize where you are, that's bad. So our practice, whether it is the intense kind or whether it is the letting be, letting loose, being at ease kind, is uh, a failure if you never realize that it's been here all along, that you are this all along. Now, you were born in New York. I was born and grew up in New York. And so yeah. I could say, if you want to find New York, you just get a bagel with cream cheese and lox, and that's New York, isn't it? Yes. Well, yes. It's all about the taste of the bagel. And it's all about the taste of this world. Our practice is about tasting that we are not only the whole of the bagel, we are the whole bagel. And we're also the whole in the bagel. Yes, and the cream cheese. Yep. We are this whole universe come alive. We are this reality. Now, why, why am I saying that this is a big deal? Let me tell you why this is a problem. Ask me why this is a problem. Why is this a problem, Jundo? Okay. You got the intense people who point their fingers at the easy people and go, you guys are never going to get it. You're too easy. American Zen these days is too lax, you know? It's not serious enough. You have to go to a monastery and be celibate and dedicate your life, and you have to do all these intense practices year in, year out, wrapping yourselves in a koan, wrapping yourselves in this practice from morning till night, and then finally, finally, you have a chance, possibly, if not in this life, 10 lives down the road, to realize this thing. Well. Those people, fine, if that's the way they want to go, it's great. But 
they should realize that some of the people who are going the easy road realize where they are and what they are all along too. Now, some of the easy people are being too easy. It's become another commodity, Zen, just a way to relax. People just want to wallow in their own ignorance and anger and greediness. No, you can't do that either. So the easy way is really not that easy because it's truly also revolutionary. It's also letting go and letting be. And in the West, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to do this. And we need this. Ask me why we need this. Why do we need this? Because we're a people who just hunger for the next thing. We need to achieve. We need to push. We need to change things. And when you have a teaching that just says, give up the changing, give up the need, and let be, it's revolutionary. Okay, I have to disagree a bit with your comparison of East versus West here, because if you look at modern Japanese culture, they're certainly a culture of people striving, working hard. You, you look at the, 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 the prototypical salaryman, the way they work, the way they, they go nonstop. And in the past, you've said that even Zen isn't practiced in Japan the way it used to be and the way we Westerners think it should be. Well, first off, I've said many times, the average Japanese person is not Zen. They're just average Japanese people. Uh, maybe the average Westerner listening to this uh, podcast knows more about Zen and Buddhism than the average Japanese. I live in a in a town where the people are nominally Japanese, and if you ask them what is ex- exactly is going on in the temple over there that you've gone to your whole life, they couldn't really tell you. The average Japanese person is not really interested in Zen. But even in the monasteries, you know, the monasteries are great. They're important training ground for this path. My only point is, it's not the only way to go. It's not the only way to go. And there's nothing wrong with what we're doing in the West if we do it, I said smart, but if we do it wisely is a better way to put it. If we do it with our heart. Sincerely, wisely, truly letting go, letting be. Sitting Zazen with nothing to attain is the same way to get to New York as to get on the bus of (laughs) the koan practice or the intense practice to try to get to New York. Either way, you're New York, man. You are sitting on the top of the spire of the Empire State Building all along. I like this idea of New York Zen. Sounds painful to sit on the spire of the Empire. It does. It does. You get a great (laughs) view up there, though. (laughs) But isn't some of this... Um, hard path inspired a lot by the past. Bodhidharma spent nine years in the cave staring at a wall and people try to emulate that, don't they? Yes, they try to emulate it. And But if you read even Bodhidharma's own words sometimes, uh, as Dogen presented it, that Bodhidharma sat in the cave after his realization because sitting in the cave was just what he did where he was at that point in his life. How to say this? I think the real master at a certain point realizes that he was the master even before, but he just didn't realize it. We are the Buddha all along, but we just don't realize it. And part of this practice is not about that 
Bodhidharma, okay, he, he, okay, he was originally Bodhidharma, so why is he sitting in the cave for nine years? What's he trying to be more? He's already the great Bodhidharma. No, he already knew that everything was complete. Thus he sat in the cave. And this comes back to Dogen's question about if we are already Buddha, then why do we need to keep practicing? Okay, so if we realize we're New York, we can't just stand forever in Times Square. I mean, we could, but life is about moving and having to do things and, and, and get going. So we learn that wherever we go in New York City is still New York City. You can go up to, you know, 120th Street, or you can go down to Wall Street, or you can go to Chinatown, or you can go over to Long Island. Wherever you go, it's still New York. So Be careful, Dogen's not point, too far on Long Island. You can go to Queens or Brooklyn, but any further is no longer New York. Well, uh, we, an that's important a distinction. subject for an, another, <laughs> another uh, podcast. I got relatives who would disagree with you on that. But Hey, I uh, grew up in Queens. I know where that border is. The point is that uh, wherever you go in New York, if you're wise, you can make a brilliant life, a brilliant practice, realization. And if you're ignorant, no matter where you go in New York, you're never going to be at home, you see. So it's not about just sitting still in the sense of never moving. It's about how we practice through life. Everything we do can be a realization of this Buddhahood and wisdom wherever we are and wherever we go. It's not something we have to look for. It's something we have to realize is every place and whatever we do, if we do it wisely. So the rationalist within me says, if there are this multitude of paths, the hard path is getting up at four in the morning in the monastery, um, sitting for, I don't know, 12 hours a day. Um, the easy path is, well, just sitting around and doing nothing. Well, do, I'm good. Is, is there a specific path for each individual? Yes. Because for some people, one is the right one, and for others, another one is the right one. Is that correct? Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. People need different things. But I'm going to say one thing I disagree with you on. I don't think monasteries were ever particularly the hard path. Can I explain this? Yes, please. I'm reading a book right now about life in the town right next to where I live here in Japan just 100 years ago. It's about the common people, the ordinary people, the tofu make, the uh, midwife, the uh, rickshaw puller, boy, their lives were tough, hand-to-mouth, poverty. I'm going to read you a, a few lines from a, a, something a midwife wrote just in the early 20th century, okay? Uh, she was going to attend a woman having a baby. The clothes of the woman I attended were often little better than rags, and their mattresses were usually filthy, dirty, and covered in mold, lice, and fleas. You'd have thought they might have at least bothered to air the things once in a while. But quite often I'd find a woman lying on a mattress so damp it couldn't possibly have been aired for months. They sometimes wouldn't have anything in the house to use as diapers for the new baby, so I'd have to fold and stitch up an old towel, and that would be the poor little devil's first pair of diapers. And it goes on like that. And this is just a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago. Now, yeah. a, a typical Japanese town, what I'm trying to say is, you go back a thousand years, two thousand five hundred years to India. The ordinary people lived in a time of starvation and 
disease, and war. The monastery was a place of refuge. It was actually, in many cases, an easier, more healthful, more balanced life where you had uh, probably steady food, a dry place to sleep, companionship, what passed for medical care in those days. Life in the monastery was actually pretty good compared to what was going on outside the monastery. Now, these days, if you say go to a monastery, I'd say, well, wait a second, I got to give up my Walkman or whatever. We they don't have Walkmans Walkman. anymore. My iPod. Dundo. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, talk about 500 years ago. Yeah. Uh, no, but I, I got to give up my, uh, you know, my computer. I got to give up my TV, my car. Man, I couldn't survive in a monastery. It's, it's, it's really tough. It is now because we have all this stuff. But I think if you go back 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, it was kind of a step up. That's a good point. And, you know, in medieval Europe, you see people being sent to convents and monasteries, and they were often children of um, aristocrats. And right. they were sent there because it was a safer place to be. Um, but if you compare our normal life to a monastery, not from a physical point of view, but from a mental point of view, it's that mental rigidity of of getting up early, sitting a lot, that is very difficult for us. It's not just because you're giving up your, your Walkman. No. It's because you're regimented in a structure you're unfamiliar with. No, no, no. Same book I just quoted. They talk about the guy who makes the tofu. They start as children until they're old men, seven days a week getting up at two o'clock in the morning to crush the beans and to clean the water and to, to put out the, the beans in the sun. Their life was regimented. It was hand to mouth. Of course, if from modern sense, it, you go to a monastery, boy, it must be a sensory deprivation because there's no TV. Well, they didn't have TV 700 years ago, so nobody no, was missing not, anything. That's not what I mean. I mean <laughs> that someone who is, who is facing their thoughts, who is not thinking about the beans and the tofu, and in the monastery, sitting in Zazen, 12 hours a day facing their thoughts, trying to control their mind, it's not a physical uh, difficulty, but it's a mental difficulty. Well, yes, but uh, monastery life is filled with activities, too. The ceremonies do change from day to day. You do sit in uh, Zazen, but there's also, you know, break time and friends and uh, going out and smelling the roses and having a few days off. I, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that the monastery was easy. I'm just saying it was not exactly as we imagine it from where we're looking from modern term. Uh, compared okay. to my middle-class life uh, with all the comforts, yes, but compared to what the average tofu maker was going through uh, 800 years ago, it was definitely, I would say, uh, Club Med. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true that we live better than kings did 500 years ago. That's true. If only because of medical care, because of um, windows and, and heating and all of the, the simple things that make life comfortable. Right, right, right. But just to come back, earlier you were talking about hard Zen training versus easy Zen training, but now mm -hmm. it sounds like there is no hard Zen training. No, 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 no. Everybody needs to find their own path. You said that before, and I agree. Some people need, for example, monastic life to be celibate, to sit zazen more uh, than other people in order to realize 
this wonderful, what we say, there's nothing to attain because it's been New York all along. And other people might not need that. But, you know, actually, I would say that all of us, or most of us, should bounce back and forth between the two. There's a time to be out in the world and just realizing that it's here all along. And there's a time to go into a monastic setting, perhaps, and and sit more intensely and practice more intensely in kind of the sensory deprivation uh, atmosphere of that in order to realize things. But my only point is the people on one extreme who point their finger at the other and go, that's not real. You're not practicing real Zen. You Americans now, you just go to the Zen center once a week and you sit (laughs) and then you get back in your car. If you, it's not a matter of quantity. It's not a matter of how often you sit. It's a matter of what you realize when you're sitting. And if you realize that you are New York all along, it doesn't matter if it's in Lhasa, in the Himalayas, or if it is actually in New York City or in Long Island, wherever you are, you can realize this. And it is not a matter of quantity or intensity. There's one American teacher I respect tremendously, a great Rinzai teacher here, who is very much into proper posture and proper form. And I think he's tremendous, except he has a tendency to point to the other people and go, if you're not as intense as I am, that's not real. There's where his mistake, if you ask me. Pride. No, uh, it's thinking It is, that, in a way, yeah. it's a certain pride saying, I know how to do it, and I'm the example you should follow. Right. Well, he's a good example for what he he does. And he's right if you have people on the other side who's saying, hey, you know, I can just do anything I do is Zen, and it's what the hell, and just, you know, uh, sit and twiddle my thumbs on the Zafu. That's, that's wrong, too. You know, there's an example of music. You're a musician. I try to and play you, music. And you have yes. a music podcast that's fantastic, by the way. Thank you for that. What's it called? The next track. I'll put a link in the show notes yeah. for anyone who hasn't yeah. discovered it yet. Yeah. Like a string of an instrument, not too tight, not too loose. A musician needs to practice, right? But does everybody have to be a classical musician who practices from morning to night to get to Carnegie Hall? Or can you get the guy who's wonderful because he learned to strum a blues guitar and knows four chords? I think uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, uh, Keith Richards, basically, I don't know, you know better than me, but he... he, he uh, he's, he's a pretty not, good guitarist, but you could play Rolling Stones music with just four chords. There you go. So both are great. Both are great. And the guy who doesn't practice at all, or the guy who's so intense, and I have this, and I have classical musicians in my family. Some of them are so intense about the music as their, as their art, their profession, that they have lost all enjoyment for the music, too. That's bad. Both extremes are bad. Regarding practice, you said something interesting there. Um, I've been learning to play the shakuhachi for about two years. The shakuhachi yeah. is a Japanese flute. Um, it's probably the most difficult instrument I've ever played. I've played a half dozen instruments. And there are times when, for some reason or another, I just can't play. My thumb hurts, my shoulder hurts, and I put the instrument down for a week or so. And when I come back, mm-hmm. I'm able to do something that I wasn't able to do a week before. And my teacher pointed this out to me several times. Sometimes when you're frustrated, instead of trying too hard 
to break through, just put the instrument down, let everything settle in your mind, and when you come back, sometimes it works better. Yes, relaxing and letting go. But on the other hand, don't just put it down and forget about it. No, of course, because if you never pick it up again, you won't be playing anything. Right. Um, but, but there is this balance between this need to constantly practice particular fingerings, particular notes, particular ways of working with the breath, and everything that happens in the subconscious when you're not doing it. Right, right. It's the middle way. You are right. It's uh, not neglecting the instrument, but neither beating yourself over the head with it. Relaxing, enjoying, but being sincere and dedicated to it. There are times to be more dedicated than other times, but also times to release and let go. In any case, the beauty of the music is to realize that the music is here all along. I guess one could sum up, and you were saying earlier, Americans, they go to the Zen Center once a week and then they drive home and all that. I guess what we're trying to achieve, because we can't look for enlightenment, illumination, that's just not realistic. But to me, it seems like what we're trying to achieve is that when we're not on the cushion, there are certain times when we do have those realizations that we're here now, that... It doesn't only happen when we're actually practicing, that in the rest of our life, we have some of these same experiences. Am I going down the wrong path there? No, you you can look for and attain realization. The realization is that you are New York all along. And if you look for it, and you you sweat and hunt with all you've got, you've got given all your guts to it, you're going to finally realize, oh, this is New York. But if you also relax and open your eyes, you're going to have realization. What we say is enlightenment. So there are two ways to get to New York City, but I should say actually endless ways to get to New York City. If you're standing in Times Square, you go north, south, uptown, downtown. Isn't there like Broadway song? Heading uptown, heading downtown, getting on the D train. Whatever you do, you're going to be in New York. In a, to quote Billy Joel, a New York state of mind. Or to quote that Bodhisattva Frank Sinatra, New York, New York. You're going to be there, man. You are there. You are this. Okay, Roshi, I think we'll have to stop the singing for now because... All due Chase respect, you're, away. you're very good at a lot of things, but the singing, you're, you're kind of not carrying the tune very well. I, I said I came from a musical family. Yes. Obviously, it did not make it to my part of the family. You didn't get the gene. But <laughs> no, I, I think did not. New, new York is a good example. As, as they say, New York, New York, a town so nice they named it twice. Right. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I have no idea, but uh, let's catch the D train. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.